Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. The definition of encounter is to come upon or experience, especially unexpectedly. For those of us that are following Jesus, we've all had an encounter with Him at some point in our lives. Some of those encounters have been mysterious, like we read about where Saul encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, and he was never the same after that. I was on the floor of a public bathroom. It was February 10th of 2001, and I was just I just started bawling. I was watching my tears hit the floor, and I just said, God, help me. And I have no idea why I said it. Or like the woman at the well that we read about in John chapter 4, who met Jesus, and despite what her culture might have shamed her for, Jesus offers her living water, and her life was never the same. It was really surprising to me. Like, my vision of Jesus was sort of like an ancient George W. Bush wrapped in a toga. And I was like... The character of Jesus can't be interesting to me. Like, I want to marry a woman someday. I'm very intellectual. This can't be true. But he just drew me in. Or like when Simon Peter meets Jesus and has an encounter with him while fishing, and he left everything to follow him. I would kind of walk into church every now and then, and I would just weep. And I didn't know why. My soul would just weep. And I'd walk out of there and be like, I'm never going in there again. And then I'd find myself walking <laughs> that past so the church. difficult. <laughs> yeah, I just felt myself drawn in. You see, encounters with Jesus, they change us forever. These are stories of change. Hi, friends, and welcome to our Friday episode of The Happy Hour. I'm your host, Jamie, and goodness gracious, I'm so glad you're here. We just finished our first week of the summer, which is exciting because I love the summer so much. In fact, this summer on Fridays, we're doing some fun family Friday things or Friday fun family things. We don't know what it's called, but I'm going to be posting about them on Instagram so you should come follow along and tell me what you are doing with your family that's fun this summer. Now, one of the fun things that we're doing on the happy hour, we have a series that we're doing this summer. It's called Encounter. And this whole series is meant to share people's stories of having an encounter with Jesus. That's one of my favorite things that happens on the show sometimes is I'll be talking to someone about a message that they are really called to right now or an activity that they're doing or a book that they're writing or or whatever they might be doing. And I love it when they slide in there and tell me how they became a follower of Jesus. So I thought one day, hey, let's just have some episodes that are specifically just about that, how people encountered Jesus. And so today's our first one. We have some really great guests coming up for you this summer who are sharing their stories of how they had an encounter with Jesus. In fact, I'm gonna share a little bit of mine today. And then at the end, I have another great story for you to hear. And then we're hearing from people like Derwin Gray, who's been on the show before. We're hearing from Liz Curtis Higgs, who's also been on the show before. We've got Erin Weiderman coming on and telling her story. Matt Craig, who's been on the show before. Mo Isom Akins, who's also a past guest. And Chris Terry, who's a new friend of mine here in town, who is a former player for the University of Texas Longhorns football team. It is a really great series this summer. And here's my prayer for you guys. Honestly, I'll just tell you straight up. My prayer for you is this, is that if you are a follower of Jesus, that you will hear these stories and it will reunite some kind of fire inside of you. And here's my bigger prayer. 
I'll just be straight up honest with you. If you are not a follower of Jesus, if you've never decided that following him is worth it, I pray that hearing these stories does something to your heart and your soul, that something becomes real for you. So that's what we're doing this summer, and I'm super duper excited about it. Okay, before we get to me talking about how I had an encounter with Jesus all those years ago, I want to tell you about a super fun opportunity that we have to do together this summer. So we're going to build a church in Uganda. Yeah, I know. It's so fun. We're going to build a church in Uganda, and I'm so excited about it. I partnered with an organization called ICM, the Global Church Developer, and together, me and you, we're going to build a church. Here's what we want to do. By the end of the summer, we would love to raise $15,000. Now, this church is not a new church. They've been meeting for 34 years. In fact, it was founded from a group of refugees who were displaced from their home, and they moved to Karuma and founded this Karuma church at the start of the war in 1987. So this church and their pastor, Pastor Jeffrey, they are a functioning church, a body of believers who are doing their thing, but they don't have a building. And so we can provide the funds for the building. They have the land, they have the workers, we're going to help provide the materials and even some discipleship tools in their own native language for them to use. So I would love to ask you if you'd partner with us. Every single donation counts and every single donation goes to this church that Pastor Jeffrey is pastoring, the Karuma Church in Northern Uganda. We're trying to raise $15,000. So go to jamieivy.com slash build a church and make your donation there. All right, guys, I thought about just sitting here and telling you my story of how I had an encounter with Jesus. But you know what? I host a podcast where I interview people for a reason, because me sitting here and chatting with you through a microphone is not my greatest gift in life. And I know that. So I thought about this. I thought, man, I dedicated an entire book, basically, to my story of following Jesus back in 2018. And maybe you've never read it. It's called If You Only Knew, My Unlikely Unavoidable Story of Becoming Free. So what I thought I would do is I would share chapter one with you, and I'll read it here for you today. And then I will share a couple more things before we get into the rest of our show today. Because reading a book to you is much easier than just talking to a microphone about my my story. So here we go. This is chapter one of my book, If You Only Knew, that released in January of 2018. The title is Permission to Be Real. If the table in our backyard could talk, it would share some of the best stories. Our friend Stephen made this table for us. It fits six on a regular night, and don't worry, we can fit eight around when we need. The wood is worn now. There are places where years of wear and tear have chipped away at its surface. The chairs that go around it are a bunch of ragtag rescues from Goodwill. Nothing fancy and nothing matching. We call it our common folk table. You guys, this table is still in my backyard right now, which is really cool. For a while, it was the only table in our backyard, which meant just about everything we did back there happened around it. Stephen always says a shared table is a shared life. And gosh, is he right about that? We've held so many celebrations around that table. We hosted an engagement party for our friends, Brett and Lindsay, around that table. When our friend Drew proposed to his girlfriend, he did it in our backyard at that table. When we rejoiced over the coming arrival of baby Nora with her parents, Kyle and Annie, it happened at that table. I don't know how many family dinners and 4th of July parties have centered around that table, but more than I could ever begin to count. We've also broken the bread of communion many times around that table. I truly love that table, but we've also mourned and lamented around that table. Tears have been shed around that table. We've sat around that table while one of our dear friends confessed their sexual sin to us. We've sat around that table with other parents trying to figure out how to raise our kids well. Aaron and his friends have invested many long discussions around that table, talking into the wee hours of the night about all of the world's problems. There's just something about that table. It has a way of making you feel at home, making you feel welcome, making you feel safe. But I guess of all the eventful moments we've spent around that table, one of them stands out in my memory. A night when Aaron and I were talking there with my dad. I'm certain the kids were already sound asleep in their beds and my mom was either doing our laundry or doing the dishes inside the house. 
Thanks, mom. Side note, she still does all of our laundry when she comes over. And on this particular evening, the longer we sat there, our discussion started moving toward things that mattered. Not just the latest coaching debacle at the University of Texas or one of my dad's recent golfing adventures, but real life talk. The kind of talk that makes you lean in closer to each other, truly listening, not just to the words people are speaking, but to what their heart is actually saying. We were thinking back. We were reminiscing about me, what I'd been through, what I'd struggled with. And while some dads might still have a knack for holding grudges over what their kids' troubles have cost them and put them through, my dad that night, for whatever reason, was feeling the weight of his own responsibility. My dad said, I think we messed up some in raising you, Jamie. I think I could have done better. My dad can never talk about anything serious without crying. So as I saw his eyes beginning to fill with tears, mine did too. I grabbed his hand and assured him, no, dad, it's not your fault. I made my own choices. I walked my own road. No one pushed me or pulled me in the directions I went. My choices were my choices. I mean, sure, like all parents, they could have done things differently. Like the time when they discovered a boy in my room in the middle of the night, they probably should have punished me a bit more harshly and taken it more seriously. True, they grounded me, which meant I had to miss the Sadie Hawkins dance that year, which is pure tragedy for a junior in high school. To make it even worse, my friends and I had designed a t-shirt for the dance with all of our names on the back. How was I supposed to explain why my name was on the back of a t-shirt for an event I couldn't even go to? Oh, the stresses of 11th grade. Or like the night when I arrived home later than my curfew and parked my car just a little too close to the garage door. Well, it was actually a lot too close because my front bumper put a big dent in it and I wasn't even aware I'd done it. Maybe if they'd assumed the worst, they might have discovered I'd been drinking that night and had driven myself home. Heaven knows I could have caused more damage than just a dent in a garage door and pulling me off the road entirely for a while. Wouldn't have been the worst idea in the world. I'll come back to some of this high school stretch of life later in the book, but know for now that even though I was a quote unquote good girl in the eyes of most people, I was also rebelling against my parents and the rules they placed on me. Rules, I might add, that were completely normal and necessary for a teenager. A fact I realize even more now that I'm a mama myself. So the truth is still the truth. My parents weren't responsible for my actions. I was. But dad was in a reflective mood that night. He was hurting, searching for answers, trying to make sense of things the way middle-aged people often do when they look back on their life. He was trying to say he was sorry. He was trying to say, I love you. He was trying to deal with the parts of his life that made him feel regretful, made him feel sad, where he couldn't help but think he'd failed. In fact, this whole subject got him thinking about his own father and what had happened the day before he died years earlier. He'd never told me this story before because if he had, I couldn't possibly have forgotten it. He started sharing how his sister had called to say their seriously ill father was stirring and asking to speak to him. This was the man, my grandfather, who was the kind of man who would watch his son go three for four in a baseball game, which if you're not too baseball savvy, that means he got three hits out of his four times at bat and somehow only find the words to be critical of his one strikeout. This was the man, my grandfather, who withheld approval from his son no matter how actively my dad sought it. But with his body failing in his final hours on the earth, he whispered the words my dad had longed to hear his entire lifetime. I love you. Words that I say to my kids so often, I barely even notice I'm saying them. They're so automatic. Not until that day had he been told what every child should be told every day. In my grandfather's own way, he was owning his failure. He was saying, I'm sorry. He was trying to be free. In the days following this conversation around our beloved backyard table, I began to think about the various ways we each try to handle our failures or even what we perceive as failures. My grandfather had failed throughout his life to express affection to his son. My dad, though not actually to blame for the mistakes I made as his daughter, carried around with him a secret sadness of failure that could still haunt him to tears without warning. And even I, right here in the middle of parenting our four young kids and doing my dang best at it, 
and making so many mistakes with this gig. As much as I enjoy it, raising humans is the hardest thing I've ever done. Put it together with all the rest of the stuff in my life where I know I've messed up and I don't need any help going to bed at night feeling like a failure. And if that's you too, if you feel like a failure, whether at parenting or marriage or friendship or just generally at life, either because of stuff you're doing today or stuff that's happened in the past, I want you to hear what I reminded my dad that night. All of us fail. All of us need a savior. And God is in the business of redeeming our stories so that he will get all the glory, not only from our successes, but also from our failures. He wants us to be free. My story includes a lot of failure, but in reality, it's a story of redemption. It's a story of the father weaving events together in my life to bring me closer to him. It's a story of him redeeming me, not only from big, bad, scary sins, but also from little sins I'd characterize as normal, everyday stuff. Now, side note, I'm not saying there's anything normal about sin. I am saying we tend to label sins as bigger and smaller. But my story is a story being rescued from what my disobedience has done. It's a story of a girl receiving God's grace like your story is. I'll never forget the first time I told a friend all the parts of my story I was so ashamed of, the parts of my story that made me feel so utterly alone and embarrassed. At that point, I could count the number of people on one hand who knew all the stories from my most difficult seasons of life. Every time I started to get the courage to tell someone the things I'd been through and the ways God had shown up, I would grow so timid. I was certain no one could possibly understand what I'd endured because of my poor choices. I always dreaded they would think less of me after hearing where I'd been in my past. Would they only see me for what I'd done, not for what Jesus had done in me? What if they looked at me the same exact way I once looked at myself? What if, what if, what if I lived in a constant fear of if they only knew? Because if others knew everything about me, I was sure they wouldn't like it. But maybe my friend Maris would be different. Maris was actually a new friend, but I had this feeling she'd be around for a while. We both lived in the Nashville area and she was dating Stephen, the same Stephen who built that table I told you about, who was in Aaron's band at the time. We all knew they would get married someday, and I envisioned us being friends forever, which I'm happy to say we still are. In fact, guys, as I'm reading this for my book, Aaron just had lunch with Stephen today. Side note. Okay, back to the book. But before I started to open up with her, I laid the groundwork first. I prepped her for what she was about to hear as if I had spent time in the mafia, sold government secrets, or been the target of an FBI surveillance. By the time I had set up my story, I think she was actually a bit relieved or maybe disappointed that I hadn't done jail time, lived under a code name, or resurfaced as part of a witness protection program. Still, I had done some awful things in my life. And as we sat together in the living room of my 1940s era house, while my baby napped in the other room, guys, my baby who was now 17, I shared it all. Really hard things. I'd never laid all my cards on the table in front of someone like that. You wouldn't believe what happened next. As soon as the words had finally escaped my mouth, my instant impression was a sudden sense of relief. I had done it. I'd shared my story out loud with a real friend. And you know what? it actually felt good to get it all out. It helped, of course, that I'd been right about Maris. She gave me permission to be real with her. Although she didn't say those exact words, she was willing to listen to what I said, no matter what I was going to say. As I poured out my heart to her, she listened. She didn't try to fix me with canned advice. And she reaffirmed all the things she'd seen God do in my life, even in the short time she'd known me. Her permission that day to be real with her was life-giving to me as a friend. Another thing I should tell you is that I learned something profoundly beautiful that day, something that may surprise you. It's this. Our stories are really not as unique as we think. The more I've told my story through the years, I've discovered my struggles are actually quite common. 
But because we're also uncomfortable talking about those struggles or even hearing about them, we walk around with this idea that no one's ever done what we've done, ever felt what we've felt, ever thought what we've thought, ever said what we've said. And this is simply not true. I'd been scared of my story for years because I assumed no one else had battled what I had battled. But except for the specific details, many others have fought and lost to the same things. If not those things, then other things of equal weight in their heart and mind. Think of how much unnecessary anguish and self-torment we've endured, as well as how much freedom we've foregone from seeing ourselves as the only one when we're not. We're just not. But I believe the lies that said I was. I believe the lies that said I was forever defined by my story. I believe the lies that said I couldn't afford to open up. I believe the lies that said all of the labels I'd assigned to myself were mine to bear not to be free of. And nobody I thought could ever take those lies away from me. Remember the book, The Scarlet Letter, that you were most likely supposed to read in high school? I say supposed to read in case you were like me and hardly read any of the books you were supposed to read. But side note, you'll be proud to know, Mrs. Kelly, I've since read many of the books you said I was supposed to read in high school and I love reading today. Well, the main character in this novel is Hester Prynne, who was caught in adultery and forced to pen the letter A to her chest every day. Adulterer. The community had branded her this way so that everyone would always know what she had done. She could never escape her past. I've always felt as though I understood this fictional woman because of seasons in my life when I'd imagined a similar letter penned to my chest. I often felt as though the only thing people would ever see in me, if they only knew, would be the letters I knew were invisibly attached there. Some days I would pen an F to my chest for fake. This whole loving Jesus thing couldn't possibly be true for a woman like me who'd spent so many years running from him, disappointing him, and acting as if he meant nothing to me. Other days, I'd pin a W on my chest. Whore. What kind of girl sleeps around and then thinks she can follow Jesus and be committed to one man for the rest of her life? Surely everyone would think the same thing of me as well. Many days, I would pin a U on my chest. Used. I assumed this would be my label forever because that's what I was. Early in my marriage, I assumed everyone thought this about me and pitied my husband for ending up with a woman who was so tarnished. He deserved better, I imagined them saying as they watched me walk into the church with a U penned so obviously on my dress. Not until years later did I begin to realize that the only one obsessively focused on all these letters was me. This subconscious pinning ritual I went through every morning, walking around and thinking everyone else was seeing what I was wearing was as private as my pain. It was a sick game I was playing, full of guilt and shame. I was the one who demanded I wear those labels. No one was pinning them on me each day except myself. The day I shared my story with Maris, I felt as though I was taking off all my letters and laying them in front of her. I was inviting her into my pinning ritual, even while fearing the whole time that she might only validate my letters as being true. I feared she'd be surprised by all the letters I owned or embarrassed to have a friend with so many letters to choose from each morning. I feared that she'd agree that, yes, I did need to keep pinning them on my chest every single day because they indeed represented the words that defined me. That's what we're afraid of, isn't it? We fear that telling someone our story will only make things worse. Even if they're nice to our face, they'll drive home with the shock and surprise still hitting them, still mentally processing it. Then they'll tell their husbands or other friends. Then everyone will know all of our letters and they'll know they're all true. We fear that's what they'll think of us from now on because it's surely what God thinks about us too. But those are letters we've drawn up and they don't match up with God's letters. When we spend our days living in fear of what the world would think of us, if they really knew us, We haven't yet believed and trusted the truths that he has said about us. If you're a follower of Christ, you've had a conversion experience. 
Once you were dead in your sin, and then God called you by name, justified you, put his righteousness on you, and made you his child. That is the beauty of the gospel. There are moments when I can't even wrap my brain around this concept, and yet there it is. Thank goodness we don't need to completely understand it in order to completely receive it and completely live it. There's a particular conversion story described in the Bible that I simply can't get enough of. Every single story of someone following Jesus is worth rejoicing over. But there's something truly amazing about someone who used to kill Christians and then actually became one himself. It doesn't make a lot of sense, right? His name was Saul. The first time we see his name in the Bible is when the self-righteous defenders of God were stoning a man named Stephen for daring to say that Jesus was the son of God who'd come in fulfillment of the scriptures these people claimed to believe. They laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's what it says in Acts chapter 7 since they had no doubt that Saul approved of his execution. Saul was known as someone who was ravaging the church and entering house after house, committing men and women who were following Jesus to prison. So what we see here, Saul was not playing around with persecuting Christians. He wasn't the kind of guy you'd want to invite over for dinner and definitely not the kind of person you'd imagine would one day put himself at constant risk for, by defending the church with his life and boldly declaring his belief in Jesus Christ. The kind of man who would end up writing more books of our New Testament than anyone else. Because let me remind you, friends, he was killing Christians. But as God often does, he interrupted Saul's life. He revealed himself to him while Saul was literally on the way to find anyone who belonged to the way, which is what they called early Christians, so that he might bound them and bring them to Jerusalem. So one day he was killing Christians, and soon thereafter he was preaching the gospel of Jesus to those around him. The change was so dramatic that he even took a new name. The imprisoning Saul became the Apostle Paul. So let's take a second here and imagine this penning process that Paul the Christian might have gone through each morning when he was putting on his cloak each day and fastening his sandals on his feet. We'll mention just the big one for the sake of time, M for murderer, because remember you guys, he killed Christians. Even a tough guy like Paul must have wrestled with these memories from his past. He must have wished a million times he'd never done the kinds of horrible things he'd been guilty of committing. Part of him must have loved nothing better than sweeping it all under the rug and never talking about it, imagining how much more freely he could share and minister God's love if he hadn't maligned and misunderstood it for so much of his life. And yet his story actually set the table for the message he was declaring. His story gave the living proof evidence of the salvation he was trying to put into words. I mean, look, his words are still ministering to us thousands of years after he wrote them. If he hadn't been willing to offer up his whole life as a witness to God's grace, someone else would have needed to do it. This was God's plan for what he wanted to do through Paul, and he was not afraid to embrace it. This is why I love Paul so much. His story is what makes me believe that no one is immune to the love of God through Christ. No one. Not you, my friend, who's listening to this podcast today. Not me. Not the woman who drove drunk and killed a family. Not your neighbor who's addicted to pain pills. Not the man down the street who drove his wife away by his constant abuse. Not the member of ISIS who's killing Christians. Not the woman who's undergone numerous abortions. Not the couple who've both cheated on each other and disgraced their marriage. Not the girl who sleeps around with anyone who'll have her. No one is too far gone to be rescued by the love and grace of God. And while sin does come with consequences, none greater than the consequence of Jesus Christ willingly suffering death in our place on a bloody cross, salvation comes with a new identity. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So when God said in Acts chapter 9, Go. 
for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. When God said that to Paul and he had been killing Christians, we can believe that God can say those things about us no matter what we've done. God can look at you and me and all our sins and rebellion. He's overcoming us and see us too as instruments in his hand for whatever purpose he's chosen us to be and become. Friends, we are not our letters anymore. We belong to a new storyteller. You might be thinking, what does that even mean? Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you both what it does mean and what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean our stories go away. In Paul's case, since his cruel reputation was so public, he could hardly avoid the scrutiny of it. Whenever he showed up in a synagogue, the stories of his previous lifestyle had already preceded him. And yet he deliberately chose to own it, not excuse it, throughout the unfolding of scripture. That's because his story, like our story, is a representation of the gospel. Despite the enormity of Paul's sin, God had reached out and grabbed him and turned his life upside down. God hadn't erased his story. He'd actually authored it for a purpose, an unbelievably glorious purpose. We can learn a thing or two from Paul about being real with people. He knew what was at stake when sharing the struggles of his past with the people he lived and worked with. In his letter to the Galatians, he used his story to remind them just how real and undeniable the gospel of Jesus truly is. By reminding them what he'd done in his former life, how he'd persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, he was laying all his cards on the table. No guesswork was needed for seeing exactly who Paul had been. But he did it for one overarching reason. When people kept hearing how he used to persecute us, is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Here's what happened, you guys. It says in Galatians 1, it says, they glorified God because of me. They glorified God because of me. The first time I read this, I choked up. They glorified God because of me. That's what Paul said. Not just the new Paul, but the old Paul, Saul. All of him. God wasn't limited to getting glory from what Paul had finally become. He also received glory from what he'd done with the poor choices Paul had made all along. God had chosen Paul to be a vessel of the gospel before the beginning of time. Nothing that Paul said or did was a surprise to God. Yet it was all being used to bring God glory. All of it. Paul knew something that I'm slowly starting to realize as I follow Jesus more and learn to trust his words to be true. He knew and believed that God was bigger than his past. Instead of being held back by his failures, he was pushed forward to continue proclaiming the truth of the gospel, even in how it was fleshed out through his own indefensible mistakes. You guys, this is such good news for us. You and I can do this too, because if God could use a man with a past like Paul's, then surely he can use us as well. If God could love a man who killed people who were following his son, Jesus, then surely he can love us as well. If God could allow a murderer to do amazing things for his kingdom, then surely he can use us for his glory as well. We can own our story because it's actually a testimony to the good news of Jesus who loves us, pursues us, and saves us in spite of ourselves. Just as Paul said in Galatians, they glorified God because of me. We can say the same thing. We can be people who share our hurts, share our struggles, share our failures, share our stories, and we can trust without a doubt that God will get glory from it, all of it. You guys, thank you for joining Storytime with Jamie. That was from chapter one of my book, If You Only Knew. And the reason I wanted to read that chapter, you guys, is because I wanted to set the stage for the idea that God is in the business of saving people. And you might be listening thinking, man, my story is too much. If you knew, Jamie, that's why I wanted to read that because I wanted you to see that you are not too much for God, 
that your story is not too much, that you haven't you haven't swayed off too far. You haven't said no to God too many times. I was having a conversation with a friend recently and they were going through some hard times. And she said, do you think it's because I've turned my back on Jesus? And I honestly said, I have no idea why you're going through what you're going through, but I need you to hear me say something real clear is that Jesus is not in the business of turning his back on his people. You guys, the stories that we're gonna hear over the next couple of weeks, stories of people's lives being transformed because of the gospel. I am praying that they were powerful to you. I'm praying that they impact your life in a unique way. I've shared my story a lot in that book, if you only knew, it has a lot of my story in it. But basically I grew up in a church. I would have said I was a believer, but started doing whatever I wanted to do all through high school and early years of college. And then I had an encounter with the living God at a conference, at the Passion Conference. And my life was forever changed after that. Now, my life wasn't easy, and I didn't immediately stop some of the sinful habits that I had been in the habit of over the last five or six years of my life. But God was gracious, and He was kind, and He was forgiving, and He was loving. And my life has never been the same since that encounter with Jesus in that ginormous arena at a conference full of college kids. You guys, these stories that you're going to hear are just like that. People's lives that have changed forever. I had already started thinking about this uh, series for the summer when I was at church a couple weeks ago in early May, and it was a church where we were baptizing people, and those are some of my favorite Sundays because I love seeing people confessing to their whole body, to the whole church, saying, hey guys, my name is Jamie, and I was once dead in my sin, Jesus saved me, and now I'm a new creation. It just, I cry every time, I don't know how it is at your church. Well, this particular Sunday, the first person to get baptized was a 21-year-old junior at the University of Texas named Sydney Runberg. I did not know Sydney, and I didn't have any reason to think there was anything amazing about Sydney. I just watched her get baptized. And then next thing you know, she's baptizing another girl, the girl that just got baptized and is now baptizing her friend. And then the next thing you know, she's baptizing another friend. And then the next thing you know, 21-year-old University of Texas junior Sydney is baptizing another friend. After church, I went up and found Mitchell, our college director, and said, I need you to connect me with Sydney because I need to hear how she started following Jesus and what has transpired in her sorority over the last couple of years. And so Mitchell connected us and Sydney is going to tell us how she met Jesus, how he's changed her life, and how she ended up baptizing three of her friends on a Sunday at the Austin Stone in Austin, Texas. You guys, when we come back from this break, we're going to hear from Sydney Rumberg. If you don't know it, guys, I'm a Texas girl through and through. I've lived here most of my life. I was born here and I love traveling. Here's why I love traveling throughout Texas, because it has a vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities, which means there's an infinite number of different travel experiences. And no two travelers are exactly alike. And it means that no two trips should be either. If you're a beach person, well, you can have fun under the sun with Texas's 350 miles of coastline. If you're more of a rugged vacation type, there are campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. And foodies cannot get enough of Texas's world-famous barbecue and Tex-Mex. Enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. And now, Travel Texas offers a one-of-a-kind online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom, visually-led trip matched to their unique interest. Guys, come visit my state. Visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn. 
you guys, in January of 2024, I made a commitment to myself. I wanted to get stronger, which meant I needed to get in the gym, which means I needed to move my body in different ways. You guys know I love to walk. Well, it's spring, and spring is the best time for us to start a new workout routine. It's our yearly collective warm-up, and Peloton is here for everyone's yearly warm-up. This is the best time to get into a good rhythm, to tap into your power, and build towards your summer you. I love my Peloton. It accommodates to my schedule with a variety of class links to choose from. I can choose a 30-minute class. I can choose a 45-minute class. If you only have five minutes, there's literally a class to get you moving your body in five minutes. Peloton has a range of class types fit for every goal and every mood. There are classes if you want to hear country music, if you want to hear uh, rock, if you want to go back to the 80s. If you can't run, take a walking class. Need some grounding? Try yoga. If you want to level up, go for their Pilates or HIIT workouts. Here's what I love is that you can move at your own pace. And that is what I'm learning that my body needs right now. It needs to move at its own pace. Peloton makes the process easier with personalized recommendations and guided programs that take all the guesswork out of working out. You guys, we think about so many things during the day. Let's take the guesswork out. Let's jump right in and let's keep our fitness journey fresh every single day. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run outdoors, row or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. I personally love a good 45-minute hip-hop class. It gets me moving. It gets me excited. It's my favorite genre of music, just ask my kids. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. That's OnePeloton.com. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Yeah, so I grew up in the Woodlands, Texas. It's really close to Houston. And with the morals of Christianity throughout our home, my dad is a really devout believer, but he didn't come to meet Jesus until his late 30s. So it wasn't even really necessarily part of his childhood. My mom isn't a believer. I have two older sisters. They're not believers either. And so I'd say we typically went to church on Easter, Christmas Eve, but it wasn't a huge part of my life. I was basically completely independent of Jesus all throughout my younger years and even through high school. I was a super big overachiever. I'm a type three on the Enneagram for those people who are into that and really just was kind of obsessed with being the best of the best of everything. I really show for perfection and live for the approval of others. I wanted my parents to like me. So I was always the top student and really wanted to get good grades to get into UT. I wanted to be the best friend. And that just looked like kind of doing what I thought all my other friends wanted me to do. So partying and staying out late and just trying to have fun. And I wanted to be the best athlete. And so I worked really, really hard in soccer. But yeah, I think just all of my thoughts throughout the day all up until high school were just about me. How can I just like make my name greater and how can I set myself up for a life of success and comfort? And there was fleeting satisfaction here and there whenever I would achieve anything. But right after that, I would just be on to the next thing and be like, okay, how can 
I just accomplished the next what's next. Mm -hmm. And I was just kind of left feeling pretty empty and had a lot of anxiety out of like the fear of being rejected, the fear of failure. And I think my root fear was just a feeling of insignificance, feeling purposeless. But so I got into UT and I was super excited about that. Came with a couple of my friends and pledged a sorority. I didn't really know what Greek life was all about. Neither of my older sisters were in Greek life. They both went to UT, but um, I thought it was just a really good way to make fast friends. And so I decided to try it out. And within the first week after pledging a sorority, this girl comes knocking on my dorm inside Callaway. And it's just like a freshman dorm where a lot of other people live. And she got my number, asked me if I was interested in being a part of a Bible study because I guess I filled out like a little spiritual interest form right when we got our bids. And she said that I said, yes, I don't even remember checking yes. I just signed Mm -hmm. and her name was Kristen Young. She was on staff with an on-campus ministry at UT called Student Mobilization. And right off the bat, I was kind of intrigued by Kristen. She had this very high energy and joy about her and she's a little bit edgier. I'm pretty just straightforward and basic for lack of a better word. And so I was very intrigued by how different she was and how she didn't really care that she was that different from what everyone else was doing. And we honestly just became really, really good friends at first. She started taking me to do things in Austin that I told her I'd always wanted to do coming to college. We went to the graffiti park together. She took me to do fitness classes. We went to cute coffee shops. And she just got to know me and asked me really intentional questions that not a lot of other people around me were asking. I feel like I was having lots of surface level conversations in college. I mean, Kristen was asking about my family, about what I wanted out of life. If I had a faith, what that looked like. Did I do anything with my faith daily? Um, And really just asked me pretty challenging questions. And then about a month into college, Kristen took me to a coffee shop and she said, hey, can I show you this? verse that I think sums up the main theme of the Bible that was super life-changing for me in my time at college. Um, And I said, yes. And she asked me two questions before she showed me the verse Romans 6.23. She said, Sydney, if you were to die today, what are the odds of you going to heaven, you think? And no one had ever asked me that question in my entire life. And so I was a little bit taken aback at first. And I was like, hmm, what would I say? Um, I wasn't sure at all. I'm pretty positive, I said 70%. And then she asked me, why do I think that I'm only 70% sure I'm going to heaven? And I said, well, I'm a pretty good person compared to a lot of my other friends. And so she was like, okay, just we're going to put that in our back pocket and circle back to it later. And she perfectly laid out Romans 6.23 for me and went word by word, emphasizing that I was basically completely against God. She clearly laid out that I was a sinner. I kind of had this idea that I was just like a perfect kid my entire life Mm. and overlooked a lot of my insufficiencies and inadequacies that I was just deserving of God's wrath, honestly. And I think that was a little bit scary for me. I was like, I didn't think I was against God. I just kind of assumed I was a Christian because I grew up in Texas, the Bible Belt. (laughs) Right. And I was kind of sad after she like was explaining to me all these things, but then her mood kind of changed and she goes, obviously if, if I stopped there, then that'd be really sad, but there's a, but, and that just means everything to come after is in complete contradiction to what I told you before. And she began to explain who Jesus was, that Jesus was perfect. He lived on earth for 33 years, was tempted with all the same things that we were yet never sinned a single time. She explained that he was the son of God 
and that he went to the cross to take on all of my sin and insufficiencies, and that he rose again three days later, defeating the power of sin and death and allowing me to have a relationship with God again. I had no idea that I automatically have a relationship with God right when I was born. I just kind of assumed that I was right in God's eyes, but she explained this to me and it all made sense. I was tracking. She asked really good questions the entire time. And we revisited those questions she asked me earlier. And it became really clear to me that I basically thought that someone was saved based on their own works. And she explained Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 to me that it's by grace that we're saved through faith, nothing based on our own doing. And that was just kind of a shocker to me because I feel like my whole entire life, I was trying to be this awesome, good, perfect person. But in all realness, that's impossible because we can't even go a day without sinning. We need Jesus. And I think that's the first time it really clicked with me that Jesus wasn't just this faraway being. He was someone that I needed because I was imperfect and he was that perfect mediator between me and God. And she explained to me what a life following Jesus could look like. But she asked me if I, if that was something that I wanted to do. And I just wasn't sure yet, but Kristen didn't stop meeting up with me. She continued to process different parts of the Bible with me that whole entire semester would take me to coffee shops and we would have just really good quiet times together. I'd ask her lots of questions because I'd never read the Bible before. And I followed Kristen to this winter conference called STUMO Conference, SMC. And it's something, it's like a four-day conference that STUMO puts on each year where they get speakers from all across the country to basically preach to college students. And so I went to that um, because I trusted Kristen as a friend. And that was really the first time that I saw that it wasn't weird for someone as young as me in college to want to pursue their faith, want to grow in their faith. And I specifically remember one at SMC where Jonathan Papluda came to speak and he is a pastor at Harris Creek in Waco, Texas. I think he used to talk at the porch and lead the youth ministry there. And he was on the podium in this huge auditorium and he tied a string from the podium to the top of the auditorium ceiling. And he said, okay, this string represents all of eternity. And then he got up this small little red Sharpie, drew a tiny red dot on the huge string. And he was like, this little red dot represents your time here on earth. And I think that's when it struck me that I like felt stupid, honestly, living for my time here on earth, trying to build my own kingdom, trying to glorify myself when really I'm just like a blimp in time and that I should be living for eternity. And so I think that's really the first time that I gained eternal perspective at all and thought about what life after death would look like. And that's when I trusted in Jesus's death and resurrection and really just accepted that free gift and chose to surrender my own will and make Jesus the Lord of my life. And so since then, my college life has looked so much different than I thought it would ever be. Because this was uh, your the winter of your freshman year, right? Yes, winter yeah. of my freshman year. And now I am a junior going into my senior year at UT. That's kind of weird. That's the first time I've said that. (laughs) But yeah, so I made that decision um, over winter break my freshman year. And of course, it wasn't just like all of a sudden I loved God every single moment of every single day right after that. But I think that's when Jesus really started working inside my heart. And when I chose to try to spend daily time with Jesus and Kristen helped me get started with a Bible reading plan on my own. And I started waking up earlier and just trying to read the Bible for 30 minutes and pray to God. She taught me that I wasn't just supposed to 
pray for selfish things, for things in my life to happen, but that I was supposed to confess things to God, to thank God, to praise him for who he is and to pray for other people and pray for the world. And I just, the more I spent time with Jesus, the more I actually felt like I was in a personal relationship with him. And it's really just like a best friend. The more time you spend with them, the closer you feel to them. And I got plugged into a really, really awesome community and became friends with other girls who were also trying to pursue a relationship with Jesus and started meeting up with them weekly for accountability. And then I decided to go to this thing called Kaleo, which is a nine-week discipleship leadership program that Stumo puts on each summer. And honestly, I didn't really know much about it. It was kind of like shot in the dark, a leap of faith. I didn't really want to do anything else with my summer. So I was like, why not spend it in Florida? I don't even know what the word disciple means, but I might as well go to a discipleship program. And I think that's when my wheels really started to turn. And I just felt like a genuine follower of Jesus. I learned how to prioritize getting in the word every single day, how to pray and how to have a greater purpose in my life rather than just living for myself. And I remember studying Matthew 28, 19 through 20 and learning about the Great Commission, which is to go and make disciples of all nations. And just thought that was the coolest thing and thought back to Kristen, how she had shared her faith with me and it helped me become a disciple of Jesus, which is basically just a follower or a learner of Jesus. And I was like, you know what? I want to do that. That sounds so much more fulfilling than just trying to achieve the comfortable American lifestyle that I was basically in college to do. Mm -hmm. And I became equipped throughout this nine week program with how to share the gospel and how to share verse Romans 623 so that people could see that yeah, we're separated from God and it's a conscious decision to to follow Jesus and to gain a relationship with God again through Jesus Christ. And so just got really, really excited basically to have a new purpose um, and to share my faith. And I was able that summer to go out onto the beach and just strike up spiritual conversation with people and ask them what their stories about faith had looked like um, and show them that verse and just get their thoughts. And because I was able to do that that summer. I went back to school and just was really excited to live completely differently than my fall freshman year. Since I had a relationship with Jesus, I was just equipped with so much more peace and joy and love and understanding of just what a relationship with him could look like. And I was just excited to basically start my new life. Second Corinthians 5.17 says we're a new creation whenever we come to faith. And so I wanted to live like that. And I was so excited about my own faith and just loved God so much that I wanted to tell all of my friends about it. And Kristen encouraged me to start meeting up with younger girls in my sorority and befriending them first and building that relationship of trust and then sharing the gospel with them because it's really the most loving thing that we can do for other people is to share the gospel with them if we truly do believe in the reality of heaven and hell um, afterwards. And so I met Peyton Poole, one of the girls that I got to baptize a couple Sundays ago. She was my little in my sorority. And right off the bat, I was like, yes, this is my chance to show Peyton like how much more abundant life is found in Jesus rather than living for the world. And so I showed Peyton that Romans 623 verse, and I could just see like a light bulb go off in mm. Peyton's eyes. And she had grown up in a lot more of a Christian background. She had been to camps kind of all her life, but she said that she was really just going through the motions, would experience highs and lows after her highs after camps, and then basically just forget all about Jesus. And he had no lordship over her life. And then she gave her life to Christ. And I got to really just invest in her faith that entire year. And she had a best friend named Caroline, who I also got to baptize a couple Sundays ago. And me and Kristen started meeting up with Caroline and eventually shared the gospel with her too. And every time that I shared the gospel with someone, 
I felt like I was on top of the world. I thought it was the coolest adrenaline rush. It sparked up the coolest conversation. And I'm like, wow, we're actually talking about things that matter. We're not just talking about boys in school and grades and our bodies. We're talking about things that will impact thousands and thousands of years from now. And then I eventually met Riley that first semester too, who is the last girl that I got to baptize and really just spent that whole entire year of their freshman year, just meeting up with them and trying to put scripture in front of their faces um, and just asking them good questions about it and trying to show them what a life following Jesus would look like. And they ended up at the end of that year, also making the decision to go to Cleo and to further grow in their faith. And I got to lead them throughout that program that summer. And really that was just the most clear evidence of God I think I've ever seen in my entire life. I got to watch them go from feeling really distant from Jesus to feeling really close to Jesus and finding purpose and identity that was rooted in him. And ever since then, it's just something that I love to do is to talk to people about Jesus and to really just be their friend and help them find something that matters so much more in this life. The greatest decision we can ever make is to follow Jesus. So yeah, that's a little bit of what my life has looked like since then. Well, Sydney, listen, I knew that when I saw you baptizing all your friends, I'm like, this girl is passionate about discipling a generation for Jesus. And you're doing that. And I want to remind everybody that you've never been to seminary. You've been a Christian for like two years, three years. But discipleship really is just teaching someone what you know, teaching them what you've already learned. And so you're pouring that into your sorority sisters, your classmates, to the people that you have interacted with this summer. Man, I'm just grateful for God in your life and the work that he's done. I'm so happy that you are in Austin and go to our church because you're changing the world. You're changing the world because Jesus has changed your life. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I loved getting to talk to you and cannot wait for other people to hear about this and to really take personally our job to help other people come to know Jesus too, because it's ultimately what glorifies him the most. It is. Sydney, before we go, I would love it if you would pray for our listeners. Um, some of them, because they heard that I've got this college girl on, they're also in your same life stage, but there's people like me who are also parenting uh, teenagers. But would you pray for our listeners that they would be drawn to the good news of Jesus? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, dear God, I just thank you so much for um, just having me today and getting to um, share my story on this podcast. God, I pray for every single um, ear that is hearing this right now, God, and I just pray that if um, that person doesn't know you yet, hasn't encountered you yet, God, that they would um, just try to um, get to know you, God, and give you a chance. Um, I pray that they would just see that a a life following Jesus is so much more fulfilling than a life um, following the world, God. Um, I pray that they would know that you're not a faraway being. You're a personal and intimate God um, capable of being known, um, that you want to initiate a relationship with us and um, you want our our love back, God. Um, I pray that, yeah, people would just take a chance on you, God. Um, realize that it only takes faith as small as mustard seed and that you would just grow that faith so much more, God. I pray that people would chase after you and um, just live a life devoted to you, God, and um, really just experience all of the joy that comes with following you, all of the peace and um, just trust that comes with that too, God. Um, I pray that people would be able to, um, just hear about how easy it is to share faith. God, I, um, like Jamie was saying before, I've never been to seminary. Um, and I've only been a Christian for about two years now, but, um, I do take personally the great commission and the command to go and make disciples, God. And it just, um, takes striking, striking up 
spiritual conversation with others to get them talking about Jesus. And then um, you can share the love and the, the mercy and grace that Jesus has extended towards us, God. Um, I thank you so much for this opportunity again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much. guys, how amazing is Sydney? I literally just had zero words. I just wanted her to tell me everything. And you know what? I need you to see her friend Kristen loved her and spent time with her. She allowed Sydney to take her own journey of coming to the Lord. And then Sydney was overflowing with excitement to tell her friends about her experience. So, so, so grateful for her story. You guys, Thank you for joining me for story time with Jamie at the beginning of the episode when I read you a portion of my book, but I wanted to set the stage about how much I believe our stories of transformation, our stories of encountering Jesus matter. And so if you have a story of encountering Jesus, which means you're a follower of Him, I hope that you tell someone about it this week. In fact, tell someone this weekend about how you met Jesus and then send me a message. I'd love to hear about it. Guys, next week on the show, Chris Kane is here. She has a new book coming out and you're going to love this conversation. And then our next encounter episode is with Dr. Derwin Gray. And I love hearing his story of how he started following Jesus. You're going to love it as well. Guys, don't forget, we're building a church. We need your help building a church. We're trying to raise $15,000 by the end of the summer. I have zero concern that this won't happen. I literally believe in you guys so much that basically if like 300 of you gave 50 bucks, it's done. If 1,500 of you gave 10, we've done it. So we're trying to raise $15,000 for Karuma Church in Northern Uganda, who has been doing ministry in their community for 34 years without a building. And we want to join hands with the global church developer and help them have a building. We can do this. I believe in us. Go to jamieivy.com slash build a church. Today's show was edited by the team at Podshaper. Show notes are written by Abby Castell. I'm your host and storyteller today, Jamie Ivey. The show is produced by Lindsay Sweeney. Guys, thank you for being here so much. I pray that these episodes this summer are a source of hope for you. Guys, come back next week for my conversation with Chris Kane. Have a great weekend, guys. Bye-bye. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.